You're listening to Studentafton-podden, a collaboration between Studentafton and Radio AF. Tonight, with whistleblower and former CIA employee Edward Snowden about mass surveillance, moral courage and his life in exile. Interviewed by journalist Andreas Ekström. There he is. At least we can see him. How's it going? All right. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you can hear that they're cheering. I can hear them. It's good to be in the room. They seem to like you. Well, welcome, Edward, and I'll leave it to you there. All right, let's do this. I would ask you to sit down, but hey, seems like you're already doing that, so (laughs) I'll take this lone chair myself. I... uh, Well, you already know this, uh, Edward. Uh, we're going to use first names because we're in formal Swedes, and I pretend to be a student tonight, so we're not going to do any Mr. Snowden Does things. Does that mean I can lose the jacket? Yeah, you can totally lose the jacket. Go right ahead. Now, Everyone else in the audience, too. Uh, I think it's a pretty mix. It's a mix of people here, so you'll be fine. Now, Student Night, as you, as you know, Edward, and everybody else, I think, in this room knows, uh, it's been around for 111 years. I mean, we've had everybody. We've had... Kings and queens, literally. We've had prime ministers, Nobel laureates, porn stars, a member of the Spice Girls, and the Dalai Lama, and tonight, Edward Snowden. So it's pretty, you know, you're in pretty good company. Um, <laughs> it's a historic night for us. This um, is not the first time that I've been outclassed. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, let's just start this off right away. We have uh, a little less than an hour to talk, and then we'll let the students come in and uh, ask questions as well. My first question is as simple as it is hard. Was it worth it? There's no way that I can look at what's happened uh, since June of 2013 when the first stories were published. And the fact that we still see new revelations coming forth on the basis of this information. Uh, We've seen laws change. We've seen policies change. Uh, The safe harbor sort of paradigm that was negotiated between the U.S. and the EU Uh, to allow companies to share information without any real meaningful oversight and liability was struck down. Now they're scrambling to get a new deal, a better deal uh, put forward today that's a little bit more reliable. But more than any of these things, regardless of the fact that we've seen things change on the level of executive policy, uh, where the president in the United States, at least, but many other countries as well, uh, have changed their rules for how uh, surveillance data can be collected and accessed and stored Although that has been moderate in the U.S., it has happened, which is the first time in 70 years that surveillance authorities have become more restricted uh, rather than more relaxed. Um, Despite the fact that the courts in my country uh, found that these programs were not only unlawful, uh, they were unconstitutional and always had been. Uh, They've since been changed. Uh, We had the passage of new laws by our legislators. That's all three branches of government. But setting that aside, I think more important than that is that we, the public, have retrieved something that we had lost in this corner of discussion, uh, in the space of what they call national security. We we weren't allowed to know what was going on, even in the broadest levels. Now, I'm not arguing that there should be no secret information at all, uh, that absolutely everything the government should do should be known, uh, that criminals should be able to check and see if they're under investigation, for example. But in an open society, in a democratic society, government is supposed to operate on the basis of the, the principle of the consent of the governed. 
But that consent is only meaningful if it's informed. And if we're denied even the basic bare understanding of the broad powers and privileges that the government is claiming to use in our name and also against us, that fundamentally changes our relationship to the government. And citizens stop becoming partner to government and start becoming subject to government. And while I can't say that this has, you know, uh, completely overturned things, we have a paradise and rainbows and unicorns everywhere, because of course, that's not how things work. It's a constant struggle. We have to always be challenging the government, challenging officials uh, to make sure that the public's interests are truly represented in all cases, even when decisions are being made in the dark behind closed doors. When I look at the fact that we understand something fundamental, which everyone sort of uh, believes, but we don't always, or everyone hears, but we don't always really internally believe, which is that sometimes the government lies. It's quite clear that we had a more open, more accountable, and I think better society as a result of it. Not only uh, do I think it was worth it, I would do it again, and I would have come forward sooner. You would have come forward sooner. That actually came out uh, of a conversation I had with Daniel Ellsberg, who revealed uh, classified information about the Vietnam War. The Pentagon uh, Papers, right? That's the... The Pentagon yes. Papers, correct, uh, in, in the United States. Uh, it's quite interesting, actually, because it also illustrates how the legal landscape has changed in the United States since then. The information he revealed uh, was top secret. Uh, it was information that was uh, produced as a result of conversations with the president, the secretary of defense, the top war planners, uh, directly related to military conflicts. And yet, despite the fact uh, that they said he revealed information, it was unlawful. Uh, he was allowed to remain out in the open, to go on news channels in the United States, to stay free rather than in prison, uh, to make his case that he acted in the public interest. Now, what's extraordinary about this is back then, uh, 40 years ago, the government lost the case. Uh, the president was seen to have exercised too much influence. He ordered all kinds of uh, egregious operations to break into the psychologist's office of Daniel Ellsberg and so on and so forth to discredit this individual who did uh, reveal classified information, which was technically a crime. But he effectively mounted a public interest defense. So the public said, yes, uh, technically he may have broken the law, but it was also the right thing to do morally. That's no longer possible in my country. Uh, the public interest defense has been removed from individuals who want to argue these cases. New laws have been passed to ensure that if the government loses information in the same context again, they can no longer, uh, they can no longer lose such cases. And so I've actually been in communication with the government to go, you know, how do we reconcile this? Can we resolve this? Because people have asked, uh, for example, under what conditions would you return to the United States? And it's, it, it's interesting because it, it seems that they've forgotten I never would have left the United States uh, if I was offered the single uh, thing that I've consistently asked for from the beginning, which is a guarantee of a fair trial where I can mount a public interest defense, where I can uh, make the same case to the American public uh, in the same way that we always have in, in every other country around the world, 
that recognizes that laws uh, are inflexible, uh, but justice must be moral. And the only people who can make these decisions are ultimately members of the public, not an official, not uh, an individual who's empowered with great privilege, uh, but the people as a result of knowing what actually happened. What are the facts? But governments increasingly uh, have really changed their attitudes to this. And it's not just in the United States. I, I want to make this clear about 2013. This is not about the NSA. Uh, it's not even about surveillance, uh, although these are obviously large parts uh, of an issue. It's about the fact that we're being denied access to basic fundamental information about the operations of our government in ways that really matter, uh, in ways that determine the boundaries of the rights that we enjoy in a society. And I think the largest tragedy uh, of 2013 is that it had to happen at all. Because in the kind of open societies that we uh, in Western liberal democracies and hoping, hopefully in all open societies around the world really want to build, we need the courts to represent the public because the public can't invest all of their time every day in becoming experts in every topic. You as a journalist, I think, understand quite well that you can write the most brilliant, most impactful, most important story, but it's only going to reach ultimately a small fragment of the public at a time. This is the same reason that, that uh, individuals and scientists and researchers and academics, uh, and of course students, have to keep communicating the same things over and over again to be understood on a large scale because we all have limited time. Uh, and if we have representatives, people who are supposed to uh, put forth our values and our interests and defend them, uh, not just against adversaries, right? Not just against countries that we're all you know, concerned about, not just, you know, whoever you're most terrified of, North Korea, uh, China, Russia, Iran, uh, not just adversaries, but our allies, our own governments. If we don't have officials that are not just invested with the authority to check government, but also feel the obligation to do so, and do so in an, as aggressive a manner as the public would, were it charged with the same information, we wouldn't face the whistleblower's paradox that we do today, which is when you are one of the only people in the world who is witness to a criminal activity that's affecting the lives of billions of people as the activities that, that I saw were. But revealing that information uh, is itself a crime. What do you do? Well, you made your decision um, and you gave us a little bit of the uh, sort of a state of the union on how the world has changed in the past two and a half years since you did. Um, and I'm still curious to hear you're talking a lot about the United States, but we have a grand debate over personal integrity in Europe. It's very intense in Germany, it's very intense in France, it's very intense in Spain. Where do you see us moving as a public, to speak in your words? We're not talking so much government, but us as, as the public. Do we change our behavior? Do we, did we learn? I think we've learned that there are some problems that government can't solve. And this is a particular challenge uh, for us, not as individual citizens alone, but as societies collectively. 
governments can do many things. They can do many things well. Uh, but they are ultimately uh, comprised, uh, at least at the executive levels, of politicians. In, in the world of the kind of uh, the press that we have today, that is in many cases quite sensationalist, uh, we have a new paradigm that we have to combat, which is that whereas in previous generations, we were confronted with atrocity that was local. Uh, you know, if there was an arson attack uh, against an abortion clinic uh, or against a religious institution, uh, we saw that and we felt some, uh, some necessity to respond to it because we could deal with these problems. We could address them locally. We understood the contexts and we had the capabilities to remediate them. But increasingly now, we live in the safest world that humanity has ever experienced. When you look at any metric, uh, from infant mortality to violent death, uh, to, to lives lost due to, to uh, sort of the precedence of disease, to lifespans, uh, to general quality of life, things are extraordinarily good and they're getting better. But when you turn the news on, you get a distinctly different impression. Now, how do we explain that? How do we reconcile that? Well, the difference is that all of the worst things that happen in the world in any day uh, from the furthest corners are in the living room of every home by the end of the night or more realistically in our pockets because we consume media through phones. And what this means is that politicians feel a pressure to respond uh, to things that they can't actually remediate. Uh, they feel pressure to correct the problems of this country and that country uh, in immediate ways and in muscular ways, in combative ways, in violent ways. Uh, increasingly, we're called upon to exert force uh, or to impose this or that sort of threat or implication. And you know, we have had some success uh, in certain areas of policy with these measures, but we've also imposed great costs. And one of the largest ones is that we've lost the ability to compromise and we've lost politicians' abilities to say, yes, these things are threats. Yes, things, these things will occur. Yes, terrorism is going to exist in the next year and 10 years from now because there will always be a few disenfranchised, violent, extremist radicals who don't see any capacity for them to, to win a debate on the basis of the value of their ideas, because there is none, so they resort to violence. There will always be some measure of individuals like that. But the problem that we face today is the politicians that must make the case for how do we address these threats, uh, which are real, but are also not in the context of society or, or even a majority of deaths, uh, existential to our societies. We need them to have the political courage to stand up in front of the nation, whether it's in France in the wake of a terrorist attack, uh, in the United States, uh, in Sweden, in the face of terrorism or any other crime, anything else that, that, that scandalizes us, that affects us deeply on an emotional level and contextual level. Go, in the United States, we spend more on our military in the next seven largest countries in the world combined. 
do we need to be able to fight wars with the seven next largest nations simultaneously? In our counterterrorism spending policies, Americans are more likely to be killed by bathroom falls or their own police officers than they are by terrorists. And of course, much more likely for those lives to be claimed, even in Europe, by automobile accidents or by heart disease than terrorism. Yet as societies, what do we spend more time, more emotional investment, more political investment in remediating? We need politicians who are willing to stand up and say that free society is not easy and it is not without risk. It is the best in spite of these risks. And this is something that I think increasingly the conventional wisdom of the day is telling them is impossible, is taboo. If you say this, you'll lose your seat. If you stand up for civil rights, uh, you'll lose an election. And so because of this, they take what they consider to be the safe path. But when we look back on this period, when we're beyond the emotional investment, when we're 10 years in the future, 30 years in the future, and we look back on this time, and more importantly, those who come after us inherit this world from us, how will they be judging us? And how will we be able to explain it to them? The only way for us to lose free society to acts of terrorism is for us to abandon it ourselves. That's something we need to hear more from politicians. But looking from an everyday perspective, I mean, these, these thoughts that you have really are long-term, they are the big picture, they are how do we build society over 10 years. But we're keeping on using Facebook, we're keeping on Googling, we're doing all these things that made this wiretapping possible. We haven't switched an inch. Why is that? So this is an incredibly complex uh, issue space, and we could talk for, for much longer than the time we have available. First, I'll need to contextualize I'll cut you off. Don't worry about that. Back in time. Huh. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, for the people who aren't familiar with it, what happened in 2013? For anyone not familiar with it, I worked at the NSA. Uh, I had worked at the CIA previously. Uh, I signed up uh, for the U.S. Army in the wake of the Iraq War. I was a true believer uh, in the basic goodness of the U.S. government, right? I was not uh, a covert radical. Uh, I was not somebody who was trying to fight the power. I was not just a child of my family. I was a child of government. Uh, my father worked in the military. My grandfather was an admiral. My mother works for the federal courts. Uh, and I, of course, ended up in the federal government. And despite this background, uh, as I worked in increasingly senior places within the intelligence community, uh, as I moved out of human intelligence uh, in the CIA, where I lived undercover in Switzerland at the US mission to the United Nations, um, yes, there's a CIA station in your uh, country as well, of course. Um, you uh, and I moved and to the you care to, I have some colleagues who I think would like to know. Yeah, if you can just spill the beans on that later, that would be cool. Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, actually, I, I, I should point out at one point there, uh, many people say, you know, the, the information that I published, the information that I revealed, this is a misunderstanding. The information that I gained access to by virtue of my position and my seniority uh, in the U.S. technical intelligence community uh, 
revealed that officials who were making public claims were not telling the truth. They said we weren't spying on Americans, we weren't spying on people all around the world. Uh, we were only collecting information about criminal suspects, terrorists, foreign spies, and so on and so forth. Uh, but I actually maintained these systems. I helped build these systems. Uh, and eventually, when I worked in an active operational targeting position, I used the systems of mass surveillance. And I realized that as I went into work every day and went through everyone's uh, sort of emails from the prior day, their web history, uh, I could see, you know, all the text messages that people had sent and so on, voice over IP conversations, whether you use Skype or Facebook, uh, that all of this was in here for everyone, regardless if they were uh, suspected of any crime. This meant that I and so many others had the technical capacity on their own recognizance without a warrant from any court uh, to pull up the emails of uh, a federal judge or a legislator or the president, uh, a human rights activist, and all of these things were actually happening. Well, I, I can't say the case for the American president, of course, but we have heard some things about German Chancellor Angela Merkel since then. And actually, I think I should let the government make the case uh, for me here. Let's rewind back to March of 2013, three months before I came forward, and see what they were saying about how the NSA was actually operating. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. There are cases where they could inadvertently perhaps uh, collect, but not, not wittingly. Now, the very first story that was published from the NSA material that journalists received, which I have never published or made public myself, uh, I provided this information to journalists specifically to remove my political biases from the process of publication. I didn't want people uh, to be getting sort of my idea of how the world should work. Uh, instead, I believe that the free press uh, is a basic fundamental building block of civil society. And that means it's the role of journalists to look at information and material, the full context of government policies, and say, this information is material, the public needs to know this. Even though I, as a whistleblower, wanted to make this information clear, I wanted there to be the same kind of checks and balances that exist within the government that should, in theory, be restraining them to restrain myself. Now, these journalists published a document that indicated they a secret court in the United States, uh, a court that's never overseen by the public. Nobody really knows what they're doing. Uh, and in 34 years, has been asked by the government 34,000 times uh, to authorize surveillance of one type or another. And in those 34 years, has, or sorry, 33 years, had only said no 11 times out of roughly 34,000 times. One of those times, they said, we authorize the interception and retention of the communication records of everyone in the United States and around the world, which directly contradicted uh, the sworn testimony, by the way, uh, what you just saw in video, was technically a felony in the United States. Giving false testimony to Congress for good reason or bad is a felony. It's a crime. Of course, that individual is not charged. They're still in charge of the intelligence community in the United States. 
And then we moved on to the state of play where we saw the largest and most trusted names on the internet that touch almost all of our lives, uh, actually one could argue all of our lives, despite whether or not we use them actively ourselves, our friends, our family touch them, Microsoft, Yahoo, Google, Facebook, they had all secretly joined uh, a US government surveillance program that would allow the United States government to gain information directly off uh, of the servers from these companies just by asking these companies through a secret legal process uh, without the involvement of a real court and without the provision of any individualized warrant to get all of your information from it. For example, if any of you have a Facebook account uh, or a Gmail account, under US law, uh, it's called the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, section 702 of this law, uh, and this was actually why Safe Harbor was stricken down. The Attorney General writes uh, what's called a thematic warrant. Uh, it's a warrant that doesn't name individuals, it names a theme. And they say, if we think you are involved in this general class of behavior, we're not going to go to court, we're not going to present evidence that you're involved in wrongdoing, we're not going to uh, justify our suspicion. Instead, the analyst, me, sitting at the NSA in Hawaii, simply write uh, about 140 characters, the same size as a tweet, smaller than your Facebook status updates. that says, this individual is suspected to be involved with cyber activity or so on and so forth. This gets kicked over to Google or, or Facebook or whoever, and they return it. Now for US citizens, this was slightly more complicated for the internet companies, but for the phone companies and the other uh, standards, it was, actually no different. Uh, these were being achieved without warrants. Now, what's extraordinary about the Safe Harbor case, uh, which was again supposed to be a deal between the European Union and the United States government to prevent this kind of indiscriminate exploitation of information that's being shared by EU citizens with US companies. The US government said, oh no, we don't do that. That's just a misunderstanding. <laughs> And unfortunately, some members of the EU Commission uh, said, well, aren't you going to change your laws? Uh, aren't you going to do anything that, that will actually enforce that? And the US government said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Here's what we'll do. We'll create a new framework that's not called safe harbor, because the court struck that down as unlawful. Let's make the same fundamental trust infrastructure that's not actually verified. We're not going to give you access to our information. There's no way for you to check that it's not being abused, but we'll rename it. We'll call it the privacy shield instead of the safe harbor. And this just a few days ago is uh, as of right now, contemporaneously, the state of play uh, between EU and US. But let me, let me just back up for a second there, because this implies that a lot of people at Google, a lot of people at Facebook, a lot of people at Microsoft must have known about this. That's actually not the case. Uh, because of the way technical systems work, uh, you have extraordinary databases of information, but they're limited to certain technical accesses. You've got one administrator who does this, one administrator who does that. So, so what you're saying uh, is that we shouldn't ask for responsibilities taken from them at this point. They can be completely innocent. No, it, it's actually not, not saying that either. Uh, this is a complex space and I think you can say there were serious failings on the side of corporations. They didn't push back enough. Uh, and this has led to extraordinarily negative consequences, not just for uh, sort of our Western societies, 
but even other countries. For example, uh, the failure of the big internet providers to say, look, we work for our customers. We don't work for governments because if we work for one government, we work for all governments. If we provide the US government special access to all of our records about everybody around the world, and we do it on the basis of saying, you know, this person's a radical. Uh, we think this person, they're not engaged in violent activity. We can't prove it in court. But we suspect they're involved in some kind of radical political activity. You need to turn this information over to us so we can investigate them. What can they do when China comes to them with the same request and says, if you deny us this information, we're going to lock you out from our market. We're going to say you don't comply with our local laws and regulations. Uh, therefore, you're a foreign hostile threat. And so, uh, as a response, some Western governments, the UK is sort of the most aggressive in this context today, has said, well, we'll just change things a little bit. Uh, we'll make the companies have to comply with us through our local legislation. We'll pass a law that says, uh, you don't have to backdoor your cryptography or whatever, but you have to make sure that you can provide the information to us anyway, which is the same thing. It's only possible to do this. Sorry, this is a little uh, too complex for people who haven't followed the issues. There is a political debate where technologists have realized, because there are so many jurisdictions around the world, uh, if, for example, we got uh, a renaissance in Swedish privacy policy, and they said, Sweden will be the jurisdiction of internet security. Uh, your communications will be safe. They will be private. They will be completely reliable. Uh, we will not violate uh, this without a court order. We won't intercept communications uh, in the first place without knowing who they are from, who they are to, and have justified a specific purpose. Uh, again, sunshine, a new day, a golden age of civil rights in Sweden. The problem is the internet is global. It's a network that crosses borders and it runs over infrastructure uh, that's provided by telecommunications companies around the world. And this means... As soon as that communication tries to go to Facebook or to Gmail or to any other company or website around the world, it's probably going to pass beyond Swedish borders. Now it's subject to a different jurisdiction where it can be abused. And so technologists have gone, well, how can we, how can we address this? How can we make sure that you have the same guarantees for your human rights, regardless of your jurisdiction? They went, ah, let's use science. Let's use technology. Let's use the principle of encryption, uh, of protecting information by running it through a mathematical process so it cannot be read and understood by outside parties, by adversaries and eavesdroppers and so on and so forth, without uh, individual knowledge of a secret key. And so this is wonderful for the security of individual communications, uh, for the security of the internet, because of course our devices are talking all the time when people aren't there, uh, and if these uh, communications aren't protected, uh, if encryption was wiped away, for example, people could not only read your emails, they could change the transactions that you're engaging in with your bank. Uh, they could provide you a poisoned update when you're updating your iPhone or your Android phone, which means they now can turn on the microphone, uh, they can watch you through the camera, they can track your location, they can see all your text messages. And all of these things uh, are not just possible, they're certain in the absence of, of encryption. So the British government, for example, said, 
Well, we won't ban encryption, but what we'll say is that companies have to be able to subvert encryption. Uh, they have to let us get around encryption. And so this is still being debated in the UK and there is pushback because people go, this is too far. Uh, unfortunately, France's emergency laws and their measures uh, are championing the same kind of general thinking. But while we in Western society have these open debates, we have pushback uh, to go, is this a good idea or a bad idea? In China, they've just passed a new law that's modeled on the UK's law. And when they were criticized for it by the United States and, and other Western liberal democracies, China held up a copy of the UK's law and said, we got this idea from you. And this is the problem. We have a challenge today where we go, history has shown us that if you invest governments with extraordinary powers, even for a good reason, uh, that we expect them to use in pursuit of a just cause, and we believe that they most often will. Uh, and I believe in many cases they do. You know, the government is not full of mustache twirling villains uh, who are out there to sort of destroy civil society. But in time, there are individuals and officials who will recognize they have all of the incentives to use these capabilities for their per personal or political interests. And because it all happens in secret behind a wall of classification, they don't have the same risks of political accountability and transparency. Now, this is the same thing for companies. We've seen again and again companies doing things that if people knew about, people would be disconcerted by. But because companies kept them secret or didn't really advertise them or didn't really make them clear, uh, we became subject to a subversion of our intent. Our technology was working for someone else rather than for us. And yet we now have this new means to go, we don't need to trust these institutions in the same way that we used to because we can use technology to enforce protections for civil rights in new ways that did not previously exist. But governments are alarmed by this. Uh, companies are alarmed by this because they see it as a one-way ratchet. They see if they allow this for a moment, it will create a space in our lives, in the privacy of our homes, in the privacy of our phones, that they will no longer be able to interfere with for reasons good or bad. Now, we can recognize that there will always be some efficiency lost as a result of human rights. Uh, if you can't simply break into someone's house, anyone's night, house in the dead of night, search through all their things, question all the neighbors, uh, track them all the time, you're going to miss out on thwarting some crimes or discovering some individuals who are involved in crimes that you didn't know about at all. Or you may have had some suspicion of, but not enough to actually demonstrate it in front of the court. But these are the same things that make our societies strong. This is the fundamental challenge of 2013 and that we're revisiting today in the challenge of, can we use technology to enforce the boundaries of protections that we know have been violated in the past and will be violated in the future? Sorry, I, I, I've lost myself. That's okay. I'll um, 
I'll just shoot you another question as you, as you recompose. Um, a lot of people are, since, since somebody is so passionate about a, about a topic that you are, a lot of people are curious about you. How do you feel about people being curious about you? What's this guy about? What makes him tick? What do you feel, how do you feel about questions like that? <laughs> this has been something that I never really wanted going into this. It's interesting because if you go back and you look at the primary records of journalists uh, who were initially working with me uh, when nobody knew who I was, um, I wrote under the pseudonym Cincinnatus, uh, which is a reference to a historical uh, figure who is invested with extraordinary power for a moment. Uh, and they did this act of public service and then they immediately disappeared from public life. Uh, they, they didn't want to be engaged. They didn't want to be the face of policy. They didn't want to have influence because they felt that the public should be the ones to really make these decisions, that we shouldn't risk having individual figures uh, of influence. But I'm, and still so thinking, I'm, still thinking, I'm still thinking that a lot of people are curious, though, about you. So I'm not going to let you get away. I'm just saying that as you continue to answer. Right. So, I mean, this is this is the challenge is the modern media explains things. They contextualize stories through a human element. They want faces. They want personalities. They believe, and I don't know whether this is right or wrong. I presume since they all do this, no matter where in the world they are, they, they must have some, uh, some kind of grounding that shows this is the case, that nobody's actually going to tune in for a news story about policy. Nobody's going to tune in for a news story that explains the technology. People don't want to be educated. They want to listen to a story. And so because of this, uh, I've been telling the media, no, 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 uh, you know, let's focus on the substance. And they've been saying, but if you're not involved, no one will pay attention. And it's not just for me, it's for everyone in every space of activism. And this is, I mean, one of the big changes in, in the balancing acts is I'm not a politician. I'm an engineer, right? I've worked with computers my whole life. I'm not very good with people. Uh, and so how do you become the face of something that you were never prepared for, never trained for, never educated, and never wanted? I don't want to tell people what to think. I don't want people to believe me. I want everybody in the audience here today to be incredibly skeptical and grant no more faith to me than the James Clapper, the individual who lied in that video clip earlier, the most senior intelligence official in the United States, who blatantly lied even under the threat of criminal penalty. We have to have a context of critical thinking, not just through education, right? Not just that we're learned uh, or that we're acculturated, or sorry, that we're equipped with this by our institutions, but it's our culture that we are skeptical of claims that can't be shown, that can't be demonstrated, that can't be proven. I believe that society should function as a contest of ideas. And the best way to test the merit of those ideas is to challenge them. And the challenge that I have with media is in many cases, it comes down to who is more likable. And I recognize that I'm simply not equipped to win the popularity contest. So I would much rather prefer that we stick to the facts rather than the people. Okay, so here's a question that you can really decide which way you want to go with. Somewhat personal, but you can make it all politics if you want. Um, when is the last time 
that you changed your mind about something important? <laughs> That's a good question. Um... <laughs> That's, why I, That's why I prepared him for it too, so he knew. This, this is one of those questions that you know you can think for a really long time about, uh, and and always come up with a different answer. For me, I'm constantly changing my mind, uh, and you know, in politics, this is seen as a liability. Uh, people say this person abandoned their position, but I think being persuadable, being responsive to facts, is is actually a good thing. Um, if we have politicians. Uh, or if we have anybody in society uh, who sticks rigidly to dogmas without being persuadable, uh, we're talking past each other. We can't make progress. We're stuck in the same places that we are born and we will die there. Uh, all progress stops with the progress of our persuasion. So when is the last time so, you changed your mind about something important? Well, I can tell you the first time that I changed my mind, or not the first time, but the most important time. And that was the fact that uh, I was really drinking the Kool-Aid. And uh, again... And drinking the Kool-Aid means completely company, buying into the idea. It's, it's not a... We don't do Kool-Aid in Sweden, so just... I, I apologize. American colloquialism is here. Uh, I was completely believing every attestation of the government, uh, even as they were going into Iraq, uh, even as people around the world were protesting this and saying, look, this doesn't smell right. Look, the evidence here doesn't seem strong. I went, why would the government lie to us? And so I, I signed up uh, and I spent the majority, the better part of the next decade in government service. Uh, and throughout that whole period, I, I felt the same way, but as I got further and further along, I saw more and more evidence where it reached a point where I think for every person, we all have a level of incivility and inhumanity and injustice that we can witness as we go through our day and ignore it. Uh, cognitive dissonance that we can bear. We see a beggar in the street, we turn our face away because we go, I can't deal with that today or, oh, that's sad. And it's just, it has a psychological cost associated with it. I can't fix every problem in the world, so I won't deal with this. But we also have a bar, a point, a line, where once we cross that, we recognize we have not just the capability, but the moral imperative to try and do something about that. And I found that line, and it changed me. I lived in Hawaii, which I still believe is probably the most beautiful place on earth with the woman that I loved. I didn't graduate from high school, and yet I was making an extraordinary amount of money uh, working for the government in secret in sort of this underground base in Hawaii, a renovated World War II facility, um, to spy on the world and to spy on the people of my own country. And since then, I've continued to change. And when I think about actually the most recent time when I changed my mind, I would say it would actually be about the value of radical direct action. Now, people might think, well, that sounds a little strange. You were quite radical back in 2013. What you did was a radical act. But I'll never forget when I was in Hong Kong uh, discussing with the journalists for the first time this material, uh, I was being cross-examined by this very aggressive journalist named Glenn Greenwald. And 
I said, you know, I don't want to be seen as a radical or anything like that. And he said, you know, that ship has sailed. And that was actually a little bit offensive to me uh, because my politics have never been radical. Uh, again, I've been very centralist uh, and I had a lot of faith in government. But since then, I've worked with a lot of individuals uh, who are working uh, to correct injustice, to remediate problems of violations of human rights. And when I put it in the historic context, because again, I'm not a, a politician, I'm not a student of politics, I, I was not equipped for this, that when we look back in history, almost all substantive revolutionary political progress has been the result of extraordinary transgression. And so the question of this is why? Why is this necessary? Why does this happen? And when I think about it, and you know, you go back in time to, to great historic injustices, uh, when you think about, for example, slavery, helping slaves to run away was unlawful, but it was moral. Legality over time through the natural momentum of institutions, legality becomes distinct from morality at many points in our history. Uh, in World War II, uh, we saw similar occurrences uh, where trying to help people escape from persecution was against the law, even though it was the right thing to do. We see the same thing in modern contexts today, where the prohibition on whether or not this person and that person can marry. Uh, in some cases, even in Russia, for example, uh, there are still aggressive campaigns being waged against people's right to love one another. And they say, you know, it's against the law for there to be homosexual propaganda, as they call it. But I say it's not right in Russia and it's not right everywhere. And the law is one thing, but the right thing to do is something very different. And it's something that we can only determine through open debate, through challenging the ideas. And when we start to classify information, when we make things secret and say, you can't talk about this, you can't discuss this, even when they're things of necessary, vital public importance. What we're saying is this is a domain of the state that can no longer be challenged. This is a domain of the state that can no longer progress. This happens in every country. It doesn't just happen in China. It doesn't just happen in Iran or Russia or North Korea. Uh, it happens in the United States. It happens in France. It happens in the UK. It happens in Germany. It happens in Sweden. There are always injustices that emerge from the process of policy because as a society and as a system of laws, uh, as a political system, we become comfortable with substituting process for justice. And when we reach that point, the question becomes, well, how do we progress from there? How do we break the log flow? Because we're all so used to it, because we're all so accustomed to it. Nobody questions uh, in the political space whether or not it makes sense for there to be so many prohibitions about people's use uh, to be able to, you know, uh, even things like use marijuana, uh, self-prescribe uh, particular medications, uh, to end their own lives because that's the way it's always been. And so we try to make changes. Uh, 
in tiny incremental moments where we look at this point and that point and we go, maybe I can change it, maybe I can fix it here. But that process is creating more injustices in every other space that we're not contesting immediately. But there are moments constantly, consistently in every country of this earth where someone stands up and says, this is unlawful, but it is also moral. I heard you say in an interview at one point that you knew that you were not gonna get a happy ending what do you mean by that? You know, it's actually kind of extraordinary how things have worked out for me on a, a personal level. Um, I can't return to my home. I'm living in exile. Uh, I am still being persecuted by my government, unfortunately. Uh, even though I've said, hey, guys, let's just arrange a trial and everyone can be happy here. Uh, they responded with a signed letter from the attorney general saying, we will not torture you which is a nice start, but I'm not sure that's, uh, I'm not sure that's where we should, should leave it. At the same time, everyone looking at this presumed that I was going to be extraordinarily isolated, uh, that I was gonna be all alone. And I accepted this. Uh, I didn't expect moving forward that I would be able to make it out of Hawaii because I worked for the CIA. I worked for the NSA. I knew what their capabilities were. I knew just how good they were. And I did not believe it was possible, even for someone who is in uh, an advantaged position, such as myself, because I did know how they were likely to detect me, uh, that someone could actually talk to journalists uh, without them noticing. And so, you know, I thought I was gonna end up in a jail cell and the journalists were gonna be doing this all on their own. And I hoped to make it to Iceland initially but Europe closed its airspace to me. Uh, I applied for asylum in 21 different countries uh, around the world, the majority of which were in Western Europe, uh, none of which responded favorably. Uh, it's important to note that initially, Russia was not amongst those countries, but ultimately they were left with no choice because the US government, they canceled my passport. Uh, when the president of Bolivia on a diplomatic airplane that should have diplomatic immunity uh, was flying from Moscow to Bolivia and there was a rumor that I was on board, France, Italy, Portugal, and Spain all closed their airspace and forced the diplomatic aircraft to land so it could be searched just on the mere rumor I was on board. Uh, so it has been a little bit difficult to make uh, airline bookings uh, and obviously I, I still haven't been able to get back to Hawaii just yet. Um, but we have also begun to see some, some very positive, uh, positive changes. Uh, the United Nations uh, officially found that the mass surveillance that I revealed uh, is a fundamental violation of human rights. Uh, the European Parliament voted that the charges against me uh, should be invalidated, that I should be uh, subject to whistleblower protection uh, which did not exist for people in my position in my country at the time. Uh, there was no legal process I could go through safely to reveal this information. And they said EU member states should grant me asylum from these charges. Now, that happened just a few months ago. Uh, 
But as of today, at least as far as I know, Sweden has not uh, been returning any of my phone calls. Um, well, but, and we're we going to move into I, the... I have to say, if I, if, if I could just continue for one moment. The key here is that as isolating as exile is intended to be historically, it's to cast someone out of society. They can't be heard. They can't destabilize things anymore. You don't have to deal with their political ideas anymore. Uh, yes, you might not be able to throw them in jail, but they can't cause you any more trouble, as it were. They can't change the politics or the policies of your country anymore. Today, I'm more connected than I ever was before. Uh, when I worked for the CIA for the NSA, I had never talked to a journalist. Journalists are like kryptonite to spies. Uh, I didn't go to, to conferences. Uh, I didn't think about these things. I didn't write about these things in a way that could have any influence or impact. My circle of friends was very close. Uh, and at the same time, I had lived abroad before. I had traveled in many different countries and lived in much less comfortable situations. And this is actually a quite hopeful thing because while we're making political progress, and yes, while uh, EU members and my own country uh, haven't yet come around to recognizing that whistleblowing is actually a public good uh, rather than this, this great safety risk that they fear, let's remind everyone it's 2016 now, not 2013, and no government in any country has shown anyone to have been harmed as a result of these disclosures. It's hopeful because the old bad means of political repression that have been uh, so reliable for so long are beginning to fail. I may not be able to get my passport stamped in Sweden, but I can still speak with you here tonight. And for me, that's something that makes me hopeful about the future. Well, I think I speak for everyone in the room when I say that we'd be honored to have you as a citizen. We just need to talk to the people in charge. Um, <laughs> we're gonna get around to that. Um, for the first hour, it's just you and me, but now there's a thousand people here, which is basically a record crowd ever through the history of this event. And they are loaded up with questions for you. Um, but before we head on to the 30 minutes... Of You're listening to Studentaftonpodden. Now we continue with the Q&A with the audience. Thank you very much for your presentation. I wanted to ask, since becoming a public figure, you've been criticized for your actions as well as valorized, and I wanted to ask your opinion on what you think the most accurate criticism that's been leveled at you has been. You know, it, this is a really interesting question. Um, one of the ones that I've heard uh, from within the United States government uh, is that there are actually uh, a number of very highly placed political figures uh, who believe that uh, I should be pardoned morally. They think it's the right thing to do, but they can't. Because if they did, it would set a precedent to everyone else that if they had some uh, disagreement with some policy, uh, it would open the door for a kind of anarchy. And so because of that, uh, I'm undermining sort of the institution of government itself. Uh, and that even if revealing this information was a good thing uh, for the public, even if we should have known this as a free uh, civil society, it can't be allowed to come from people who are not uh, representatives of the official institution because it delegitimizes them. And personally, I would have a counter argument here. 
which is that, well, there are many ways to address this, create laws, uh, to create mechanisms for things uh, within your institutions that offer bulletproof whistleblower protection, or create international courts of remediation, some platform to deal with this. Because in every country, for example, if there's a Swedish whistleblower, if there's a Swiss whistleblower, if there's a French whistleblower, uh, they are always going to be uh, persecuted as strongly as possible by their own governments. And we've actually seen this in the intervening years because it is a threat to their authority. But every other country in the world doesn't have these same uh, emotional responses uh, because they're further removed from it, they can see it. But ultimately, even if we set that aside, even if we go, look, we're not gonna create laws or this is, this is kind of dangerous or destabilizing in one way or another, I would argue that pardon never sets precedent. That's why we have pardon, that's what it exists for. Uh, it's for exceptional cases where you realize the law in itself may be a good law. For example, the Espionage Act under which, I'm, with which I was charged uh, is intended for being uh, used against actual spies, people who are selling uh, sort of the keys to the gate so the army can let themselves in and kill everyone in the town uh, for money, for their own personal benefit. But the presidential administration of Barack Obama has used this law against journalistic sources uh, who are not doing this for a personal benefit, but are doing this to inform the public more than all other presidential administrations in the history of the United States combined. The only way for them to sort of find their way out of these thicket of laws, these thicket of precedents in which they place themselves is probably to charge people less uh, with laws that were not intended for that purpose. Uh, and then recognize that you don't have to strike a law off the books to recognize every situation and every place and every moment is different. And they should all be judged individually on that basis. Uh, to try to treat uh, an act of journalism as an act of crime, I would say is actually a far more dangerous precedent to our societies than being worried about the disposition of any one individual whistleblower. Hi. Um, has mass surveillance prevented any terrorist attacks? Thank you so much for asking this, uh, because I actually have a slide for this. Um, this is the result of a presidential panel put together by the President of the United States. Uh, in the wake of these disclosures, they had complete access to classified information, uh, they were not sort of reformers. Uh, one of them was the deputy director, the second highest official uh, of the CIA. And yet when they reviewed all of the information they found, we have not identified a single instance involving a threat to the United States in which the telephone records program, which was the primary mass surveillance program we were talking about at the time, has made a concrete difference in the outcome of a single counterterrorism investigation. Moreover, they weren't aware of a a single instance in which the program even directly contributed to the discovery of a plot or this, that, or the other. Now, that's one program, not every program in the world. Uh, however, the only programs that the government has ever asserted have been valuable are ones they called target pro targeted programs because they claim they don't do mass surveillance. 
we can't actually get the real answer to that question without having the government admit that mass surveillance, which it euphemizes as bulk collection, is occurring uh, and having a real meaningful inquiry there. But uh, I will say journalists have had access to an extraordinary amount of classified information since 2013, and they have never discovered a single case where mass surveillance has stopped a terrorist attack. Uh, and despite the fact that this is in controversy, not just in the United States, uh, but in Canada, in the UK, in France, and Germany, and none of these governments have ever said, we caught this individual solely because of this mass surveillance program. It's fair to say that if that evidence existed, we would have seen it by now. Let me just add to that, since there's actually there's actually one case that concerns a few Swedish citizens who intended to attack a newsroom in Copenhagen a few years back, where it's where it actually would be somewhat of an example close to that. So let me just uh, add that on. But actually, if if I could tag onto that just before we get the next question, uh, you can. There's there there's a a further point here, which is, look, the efficiency argument for mass surveillance isn't great, but let's say it was. Uh, let's say it wasn't, you know, one particular incident possibly in Sweden. Let's say it was one a week. Uh, let's say it was one a day. Would that make it okay to revoke the right of privacy of every individual in every corner of the earth? Uh, I would argue no. Now, there are people that argue against this. They say, you know, what do you care? If you're not doing anything wrong, you've got nothing to hide. Uh, and I say that Arguing that you don't care about the right to privacy because you have nothing to hide is no different than arguing you don't care about freedom of speech because you have nothing to say, or you don't care about freedom of the press because you are not a journalist. Rights are not only individual. They're also collective. And trying to say that you, as a member of the privileged majority or some other segment of society, don't feel uh, that you're particularly at risk of repression or, or government uh, interference in your life your family, your loves, your decisions, uh, in this day, in this moment, uh, is not just a, an antisocial thing to do because you're, you're casting away everyone else. It's a short-sighted thing to do because you never know what rights you're going to need until you need them. Our lives go in unexpected directions uh, and privacy is actually the right from which all other rights derive. Freedom of religion derives from the right to privacy because it allows you to determine what your beliefs are free from the judgment or pressure of others. Private property, uh, the right to own a home, the right to own a computer is called private property for a reason. Even our models of government, we are called private citizens and they public officials for a reason. So to get on to the next question, I would simply say, even if mass surveillance uh, were efficient, it would still be immoral. Uh, in a uh, uh, Jason Bourne film, they're running through a train station in London and the CIA takes control over the cameras. I was just wondering if, if that's possible. I always wanted to know as well. I've got something for this. So in the UK, British intelligence, which is a close peer of the United States intelligence community, there's what's called the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance. Uh, who share things more closely than other intelligence communities around the world. That would be the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. Basically, the primary English-speaking countries. If you're a member of that club, they share everything with each other. Uh, 
And they said they were classifying documents, which is circled, not because if they were released, it would cause harm to national security, not because lives would be lost, not because we'd lose uh, agents uh, or terrorist attacks would succeed, but because of, and this is their words, a quote, damaging public debate about the scale of their activities that could lead to legal challenges. Now, the Jason Bourne film was talking about cameras. It turned out the GCHQ, the British equivalent of the NSA, was intercepting all of the communications, all the pictures that were being sent through web cameras, not in train stations, in your bedroom, if you were using Yahoo web chat. Uh, they knew these included sexually explicit images. Uh, they knew it had not been particularly valuable in thwarting terrorist attacks, but they continued to do it despite that. Uh, and it's not just that, oh, they've got, you know, active or some kind of information about your private sexual activities and they're not going to use it for anything. The NSA discussed using information that it had on the pornography viewing habits of radicals uh, or what they called radicalizers, people who were engaged in radical political movements uh, who were Islamists in this case, but they were not known to be associated with terrorism or actually violence, they were just considered to have radical views. Uh, they publish information of their pornography viewing habits uh, to discredit them in front of their communities. Now, people can debate about whether or not uh, this would provide some sort of national advantage uh, in winning a war of ideas, but it's a very slippery slope when we permit government to not just have access to, you know, uh, public infrastructure, like train stations and things like that, which, you know, it would have to be hacked or subverted or have some kind of security weakness. If it's properly encrypted, they can't break into it. Uh, but not just that, but the phone in your pocket, the webcam on your laptop. Uh, it used to be that the influence of government stopped at the borders of our homes. This changed and it happened without our knowledge and without our consent. And while we can have arguments about whether or not that should happen because you know we're facing this threat or that threat, even if it doesn't claim many lives uh, on the macro scale, I feel that that's fundamentally a decision that should be arrived at by the public rather than by a few officials behind closed doors. All right, so I'm wondering do you still trust the American government seeing all the things that have happened now in other uh, areas? For example, are you expecting other whistleblowers to come forward? This, ultimately, it's the question personifies a government as an individual. You know, do you trust the government of the United States? I think the real lesson is that Institutions can't be trusted. Spies can't be trusted. For example, uh, in Sweden, no doubt you've had your own conversations about uh, where the line should be drawn about surveillance policy. And you would have some official who stands up and says, oh, no, Swedish military intelligence, we don't do that. Uh, a police chief would say, we don't do that. We don't engage in those activities. <laughs> Please remember uh, General Clapper, who was mentioned previously, uh, General Michael, uh, or sorry, General Keith Alexander, former director of the NSA, uh, during my time, my tenure there, he was my boss. Uh, 
did the same thing in a different session of Congress. Spies lie. Um, politicians, unfortunately, uh, also lie. They may not lie directly. They may lie through omission or they may simply mislead. Perhaps we should replace the word lie with deceive. And I think this is a universal problem. I don't think it's related strictly to the American government. I think it comes down to the system of incentives. Have we structured our processes, our elections, our societies in such a way that when an official makes a statement that's untruthful or even misleading, we can immediately detect that it is false, uh, that that uh, official's opponents are rewarded for revealing the falsehood? Or will they all benefit from simply not commenting on it or taking a safer path? If we incentivize deception, we'll be deceived. If we incentivize honesty, we'll have the accountable government that now more than ever we really need. Uh, Mr. Snowden, uh, right now you're stuck in Russia, which I guess is inconvenient. But uh, if you get uh, political asylum <laughs> in uh, the European Union or another Western area, what do you hope to achieve in uh, 10 or 15 years? You know, I don't think that far ahead. Uh, this is one of the interesting things about uh, having lived through a situation where you think your life is over. You stop worrying about tomorrow and you spend a lot more time thinking about today. I wake up every morning and I think about what I can achieve now. I'm just now, after three years, beginning to think about what comes next. Uh, I work for the Freedom of the Press Foundation in the United States now, where we're trying to create technology to enforce human rights across borders in the kind of conceptual space that I've described today. Uh, because I think that even if we can someday trust one government, I'm not so sure that we'll reach a space where we can trust all governments all the time, where we can trust all companies all the time to do the right thing in every situation. And I think more than anything, in France, for example, there's state of emergency laws that we see uh, were supposed to be passed for an immediate period to see if there were follow-up attacks that were being brewed, uh, keeps being extended again and again, uh, a sort of suspension of civil liberties. And this is a trend that we see becoming increasingly popular in Europe, particularly in the context of sort of this uh, great migration that we see uh, moving through the, the European continent. And something that I would like to do that I think we should, we should all work to do is remember the risks the risk that we'll face today and context, or the risks that we'll face tomorrow and contextualize the risks that we face today. Terrorism is a criminal problem. It's not actually a military problem. There are military conflicts we can have against military groups, states, uh, and regions uh, in other countries. But in the context of our own societies, when we start using military force, uh, state security agencies, uh, intelligence services, instead of police, we're granting an exception to traditional prohibitions uh, of the use of government authorities against its own citizens. And when you grant one exception, uh, you've done away with what could be considered an in, inabrigable right, uh, a right that cannot be violated uh, in these contexts. 
And that means we've changed our society. We've set a precedent in a way that we may not be able to change back in the future. But in terms of concrete, what would I like to do? Uh, I'd like to make the internet safe and reliable. And I'd like to make sure that we don't have to be experts uh, to avail ourselves of those levels of protection. Now, the NSA uh, monitors everything I do online. The FBI does the same because the US government has a warrant against me. Now, I worked for them, so I, despite that, I, engage, or I uh, enjoy a higher level of protection. I think that most people uh, who are in a similar situation might. Uh, if you're a democracy activist uh, and the local police are looking into you, you're gonna have a hard time defending yourself against them. I have a pretty strong chance to defend myself against most adversaries, but it's fair to say uh, that the NSA and the U.S. intelligence community, which has a $53 billion a year budget, is going to outclass anybody. Can we change that? Can we make sure that the NSA, with their giant pile of money, has just enough capability that they can counter real threats, significant threats uh, from nuclear missile cores, from the movement of armies across borders, uh, from adversary states that were trying to derive their plans and intentions, uh, and even true terrorist threats to life that are immediate and direct. Uh, but by the time they get to the project of, well, we want to watch everybody around the internet, everywhere, just in case. They simply won't have the available funds and technology capability manning the, the people available to tackle the threat that they consider civil society. And if I could just point out one thing, because this may seem paranoid to some people, it may seem like I simply don't trust the government enough. Now, in my country, we had uh, an incredibly influential civil rights leader named Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, he ended the segregation of black and white people uh, in, in schools and many other places uh, around our nation in a critical way. And he gave a famous speech, the I Have a Dream speech uh, in Washington, DC, the capital of our nation, uh, that so many people attended and it truly changed the politics of our country. Two days after he gave that speech, the FBI declared him a threat to national security. This is the same case in most countries today. And you can't criticize them for it. That's their nature. Um, you can only try to control them. Even people who worked within the White House uh, in the United States in, in previous eras had their telephone taps or had their telephones tapped because it was seen uh, their criticism of a particular facet of foreign policy was presumed to be at the behest of a foreign government. We have to always guard ourselves and our society against unnecessary privilege and unnecessary authority because abuse is the product of power. It is an output like pollution for an industrial process. It may not be the primary output, but inevitably in time, it will be created. So if it is not absolutely vital, absolutely essential uh, to the continuation of our free and open societies, we are actually doing more harm to our way of life 
than the terrorists or other individuals that we are trying to counter. We need to be careful about that. You've listened to Studentaftonpodden, a collaboration between Studentafton and Radio AF. More of our podcasts are available on iTunes and RadioAF.com. Um, I just have one final question for you. And Andreas was asked this question uh, a few months ago, and the answer was you. So I guess you know where I'm going with this. If you get to wish for someone, could be anyone you want, to come here to Studentafton and speak as a guest of honor, who would it be? <laughs> It's true, I did answer you. <laughs> There are a lot of names I could say. But I'm going to stick with a matter of principle that I have stuck to quite strongly in the journalistic context here and say it's not for me to say. It's far too easy, far too easy for us to sort of separate individuals to say, this individual's on the stage, let's hear from them. Uh, and I appreciate that. But more than anything, I'm interested in what everyone in the room has to say. I think all opinions are better than a single opinion. And I'm going to go with that. Well, you know what, though? I, I have a, propo a proposition for you. Um, let's do this again, you and I, no more than 10 years, and get here for it. Deal? That's All right. a deal. Let's That sounds happen. like a great deal, I would say. Thank you, thank I you, hope you for coming to us. Thank you, Eric. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much.